0: Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. October 31st is the day that many evangelicals celebrate the Protestant Reformation, the date coming from the day on which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Luther was certainly not the first to recover biblical doctrines. He was preceded by others like John Huss and William Tyndale. But Luther did spark a reformation that continued with men like Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bucer, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, and more on into the 17th century with the continued reformation of groups like the Puritans and the Separatists culminating in what today we know as Presbyterianism, and the Baptist movement. The Reformation recovered many important biblical doctrines, such as sola scriptura, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. But the Reformation was also a recovery of important biblical doctrines related to ecclesiology and worship. One often overlooked reformer was Martin Butzer a pastor and theologian who interacted with each of the other key reformers and had significant influence particularly on worship reforms. Butzer ministered in Strasbourg, Germany, and was heavily impacted by Martin Luther. But since Strasbourg was closely allied with the Swiss, he followed more in the reform tradition of Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin than Luther. Butzer acted as a sort of mediator between Luther and Zwingli, urging them to unite. And he also welcomed John Calvin in Strasbourg for a period, which I'll mention more in a moment. He worked with Philip Melanchthon, who was an associate of Luther, on the Wittenberg Concord, which was a foundational document for Lutheranism. And in the final years of his life, Martin Buzer influenced Thomas Cranmer in England. When Butzer arrived in Strasbourg in 1523, one of his first goals was to enact worship reforms and create a new liturgy. The Reformation there had already begun in earnest, but the liturgy in common use was simply a German translation of the Latin Mass. Martin Butzer's most significant work on the subject, Grund und Ursach, Ground and Reason, which was completed the following year, condemned the idea of the mass as sacrifice, calling it superstition, and stressed the idea of communion in the service instead. Butzer insisted that worship that is proper and pleasing to God must always be based upon the sole clear word of God. Butzer produced three service books beginning in 1525 and published in 1526 the Strasbourg Psalter, culminating with the 1539, the psalter with complete church practice. Buzer replaced the sanctuary altar with a table in order to return to the symbolism of a meal rather than a sacrifice. He argued this, We have only one altar, one sacrifice, and one priest. All of these are Christ. Buzer intentionally used the term the Lord's Supper instead of Mass, and sought to bring the reading and preaching of the word back to a place of significance alongside the table. He rejected what he considered ceremonies of human origin, including vestments. He insisted that church leaders had no right to invent new forms or to enrich existing forms with these kinds of innovation, which either hid or replaced the basically biblical signs in worship. Buzer said this, The Lord instituted nothing physical in his supper except the eating and drinking alone, and that for the sake of the spiritual, namely, as in memory of him. Yet we have observed that many cared neither to consider seriously the physical reception nor the spiritual memorial, but instead, just as before, were satisfied with seeing and material adoration." Like his Eucharistic theology, Butzer's service really stood midway between those of Luther, who retained much of the liturgy of the medieval mass, and Ulrich Zwingli, who stripped down the service to such simplicity that he didn't even allow singing. Butzer's service did reflect the simplicity of biblically regulated worship, yet he retained the basic order of the service including many of its elements, and he also advocated for the singing of psalms and hymns. Bucer's central goal was the preservation of unity, but that ended up being his downfall. He attempted to unify Protestants and Catholics in Germany, but after the governing council of Strasbourg accepted what was known as the Augsburg Interim at the behest of Charles V in 1548, which reimposed Catholic worship practices, Butzer was exiled to England, where he lived the final years of his life and interacted with Thomas Cranmer there. As I mentioned, Martin Butzer interacted quite a bit and had an influence upon John Calvin. Reformation among French-speaking people flourished under the leadership of John Calvin, Calvin had been educated in law rather than the priesthood, but after his conversion around 1530, he fled persecution to join the Reformation in Geneva in 1536. He began to preach Lectio Continuo through books of the Bible, through the Pauline epistles in particular, the governing council of the city held a considerable control over ecclesiastical matters in Geneva, and they at first resisted Calvin's reforms. They expelled Calvin from the city, who then accepted the invitation of Martin Bucer to pastor French refugees in the city of Strasbourg. While in Strasbourg, Calvin began work on what would be his influential Psalter and began to make liturgical revisions based on those implemented in Germany by Bucer. In 1541, the Genevan Council invited Calvin back, and he ministered there until his death in 1564. Similar to Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Bucer, Calvin's central goal was to return to the simple worship practices of the early church, strictly following biblical prescription. Calvin argued this, quote, A part of the reverence that is paid to God consists simply in worshiping him as he commands, mingling no inventions of our own. Calvin interpreted the second commandment as God defining, quote, lawful worship, that is, a spiritual worship established by himself, and Calvin insisted upon, quote, the rejection of any mode of worship that is not sanctioned by the command of God. Calvin also agreed with Zwingli and Bootser concerning iconoclasm, ridding the church of any sort of visual aids to worship. Calvin argued, quote, We think it unlawful to give a visible shape to God because God Himself has forbidden it, and because it cannot be done without, in some degree, tarnishing His gospel. And lest any should think that we are singular in this opinion, Those acquainted with the production of sound divines will find that they have always disapproved of it. If it be unlawful to make any corporeal representation of God, still more unlawful must it be to worship such a representation instead of God, or to worship God in it. The only things, therefore, which ought to be painted or sculptured are things which can be presented to the eye." The majesty of God, which is far beyond the reach of any eye, must not be dishonored by unbecoming representations. Calvin employed a particular argument of emphasizing the critical discontinuity between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship in much of his worship reforms. For example, in commenting on Roman Catholic worship, Calvin said this, What shall I say of ceremonies, the effect of which has been that we have almost buried Christ and returned to Jewish figures? Calvin complained, A new Judaism, as a substitute for that which God had distinctly abrogated, has again been reared up by means of numerous puerile extravagancies collected from different quarters. Calvin criticized the priesthood, noting, quote, "...then as if he were some successor of Aaron, he pretends that he offers a sacrifice to expiate the sins of the people." Unquote. Although Calvin agreed with Zwingli concerning biblical authority over worship practice, like Martin Bucer, he did not agree entirely with Zwingli on music in worship. While his goal was still biblical simplicity, he did allow unaccompanied unison psalm singing, since he found support for such practices in Scripture. He argued that this practice was very ancient and done among the apostles, and he insisted that songs, quote, "...incite us to prayer and to praise God, to meditate on His works in order to love, fear, honor, and glorify Him." Calvin considered singing to be a form of prayer. He noted that one kind of prayer consists of words alone, while the other consists of singing. He insisted, however, that Christians sing only Scripture. He said, Now what St. Augustine says is true, that no one can sing things worthy of God except what he may have received from him. When we shall have moved all around to search here and there, we shall find no better nor more proper songs to do this than the Psalms of David. Over the course of the next twenty years, Calvin helped encourage the publication of several editions of the Genevan Psalter, an influential collection of metrical psalms with texts by Clement Moreau and Theodore de Beza and tunes by Louis Bourgeois and Claude Goudimel. Its final edition in 1562 contained all 150 psalms with 125 tunes. Calvin insisted that the character of music in worship fit its solemn purpose. He said that tunes ought to have weight and majesty rather than being light or frivolous. While he found warrant for singing in scripture, Calvin did not approve instruments as Martin Luther did. He argued that while God allowed the people of Israel to use instruments in their worship, this practice terminated with the gospel. In 1542, Calvin published a service book called The Form of Church Prayers and Hymns, which presented the liturgy that he used in Geneva. Calvin suggested in the preface to his Genevan Psalter, published in the same year, quote, Now there are briefly three things which our Lord commanded us to observe in our spiritual assemblies namely, the preaching of his word, prayers public and solemn, and the administration of the sacraments. The service book's subtitle emphasized Calvin's central concern, according to the custom of the ancient church. The liturgy he formulated for Geneva emphasized this biblical simplicity, while not altogether ignoring what had developed in the previous centuries— Calvin maintained his own unique understanding of the presence of Christ in the supper. He asserted that Christ was not actually present in the elements like Luther did, but that, quote, all that Christ himself is and has is conveyed to believers through the Spirit of Christ at the supper. Calvin's worship service began with Psalm 124 8 Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. The first major element of his service, then, was corporate confession. Calvin noted, quote, Seeing that in every sacred assembly we stand in the view of God and angels, in what way should our service begin but in acknowledging our own unworthiness? In short, by this key, a door of prayer is opened privately for each and publicly for all. Calvin regularly began his services with a reading of the Ten Commandments, and after each commandment, the congregation would sing Kyrie Eleison, which is Greek for Lord have mercy. Calvin believed that in repenting each week through reading the Ten Commandments and singing a prayer of repentance, the people in his congregation would be formed into people who lived lives of repentance. Then in his service, there followed a psalm, a reading of scripture and the sermon. Like Zwingli, Calvin abandoned lectionaries in favor of lectio continuo preaching through books of the Bible. Intercessory prayers and a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer followed the sermon. Calvin desired that communion be observed at least once a week, but the ruling council of Geneva, which still maintained a lot of control in the city, would not allow it. They instead followed Zwingli's example of only quarterly celebration of the table. When observing the table, Calvin's service transitioned between the service of the word and communion with the traditional practice of affirming the Apostles' Creed, although for Calvin, this consisted of a sung version of the creed. The service of the table contained a prayer of thanks, including an invocation and the Lord's Prayer. Interestingly here, Calvin preserved the tradition of what's called the Sursum Corda, in which the pastor would say, lift up your hearts, and the people would say, we lift them up to the Lord. Calvin said this, Let us raise our hearts and minds on high, where Jesus Christ is, in the glory of his Father, and from whence we look for him at our redemption. In Calvin's Eucharistic theology, he recovered the New Testament idea that in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, worshipers are raised to join in with the worship of heaven, represented at this climactic moment in the service. Calvin said this, Let us not be bemused by these earthly and corruptible elements which we see with the eye and touch with the hand in order to seek him there as if he were enclosed in the bread or wine. Our souls will only then be disposed to be nourished and vivified by his substance when they are thus raised above all earthly things and carried as high as heaven to enter the kingdom of God where he dwells. Let us therefore be content to have the bread and wine as signs and evidences, spiritually seeking the reality where the word of God promises that we shall find it. After reading the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11, the people partook of communion, during which they sang a psalm of thanksgiving, often Psalm 138. When all had finished, another prayer of thanksgiving was offered, and the service concluded with a final psalm of praise. Calvin's worship reforms in Geneva became the influential standard and model for several other traditions and have come to characterize quintessential Reformed worship. One particular comment Calvin made in the context of his liturgical reforms epitomizes a core biblical theology of worship. When challenged by opponents that his concerns about worship were unnecessary, Calvin replied, It is not true, as has been alleged, that we dispute about a worthless shadow. The whole substance of the Christian religion is brought into question. John Calvin recognized the formative relationship between liturgy and the Christian religion. How we worship forms what we believe. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com scottannual I blog at g3min.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.